2 Kings chapters 8, 9, and 10 this morning. That's right. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture to you today. In fact, three chapters worth. But don't worry. I absolutely guarantee that it will not be boring. These chapters in 2 Kings are probably the most exciting chapters and most gruesome in the whole second book of the Kings. There's action, adventure, blood, death, intrigue, suspense. These chapters have them all. Here's the title that I picked to sum up these three chapters in one quote from chapter 9, verse 7, where God through the prophet says, I will avenge the blood of my servants. That's the title of this morning's message, and you can, you can see how it's already going. I will avenge the blood of my servants. This is a big story about the justice of God. I tried to think about how to divide this up into little shorter portions for preaching, maybe a, a chapter at a time like we've about been doing the last few weeks. But I really think these next several chapters all flow together to tell one big story about how our God brings perfect justice and rights every wrong. We just sang, born His people to deliver. God says, I will avenge the blood of my servants. Now perhaps you have not been waiting for that in this book, and that's my fault, at least a little. Back in 1 Kings, the Lord promised to bring justice against Ahab, against Jezebel, against all of Ahab's children. Do you remember that? Back in 1 Kings? Ahab was a six thumbs down king. The worst king ever by far at that point. And he married a ten thumbs down queen. And they killed the prophets of Yahweh by the dozens, maybe by the hundreds, perhaps by the thousands. And they brought in the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. They led the country into rank idolatry. And though Ahab died at the end of 1 Kings, Jezebel's still living. And Ahab's son is the king. His line has continued. In fact, it's actually Ahab's grandson who is the current king in Israel. I thought God had promised to bring justice. For the last few months, I should have pointed that out. I should have said that every Sunday when I preached from 2 Kings. Because you're supposed to feel it when you're reading these chapters. All of those chapters where Elisha, the prophet, was bringing peace and joy and life and hope to God's people, God's faithful remnant, every single sermon should have included the line, huh, I thought God had promised to bring justice. In 1 Kings 19, when Elijah heard the small, still voice, remember that? It was actually the summer we were there. He was told to anoint Elisha, but also to anoint, to see that Hazael was anointed king over Aram, and Jehu king over Israel. Has that happened? No. We should feel that. 1 Kings 19. We're already to 2 Kings 8 and that hasn't happened. Elijah went to heaven on a fiery ride before these things were accomplished. And Elisha hasn't done them yet either. Huh. I thought that God had promised to bring justice. He's brought miracles. 
He's healed the waters. He's healed the death in the pot. He's taken care of widows. He's taken care of Syrian generals with leprosy. He's made an axe head float. He's blinded Arameans and opened the eyes of his servants. He's lifted a famine and made some lepers very happy and sent the Arameans packing all by himself. But so far, no justice. Huh. I thought God had promised to bring justice. Now it's time. We've just about reached the end of the story of Elisha, and it's all about God's avenging justice. Would you pray with me, and then we'll get started reading. Father, help us to feel it the way 2 Kings wants us to feel it. How you want us to feel it because we've been in the details of 2 Kings. There's a promise unfulfilled yet. They're waiting. Will God bring this judgment? Will God bring justice? Will there be vengeance? As is right. Lord, we feel that today. So often we look out at the world and we say, this ain't right. Is it going to get fixed? Is everything going to be the way it should be, because it isn't right now. There's so much injustice and wrong. Lord, we long for the day when all will be made right. Help us to see that that's the kind of God we are worshiping this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, the one born to deliver, born to save His people from their sins, and from their enemies. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 8. Do you have it? Look down at verse 1. It starts with one last happy story, which is also a story about justice. Verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. Do you remember this lady? She was that mom back in chapter 4, whose son had died. The son she hadn't even asked for, but then had been given, and then he'd been taken. And then the Lord, through Elisha, brought him back to life. Well, she's had to move away, because more hardship has come into her life. There's been a famine, and she's moved away, and she's now gotten back, and someone, perhaps the government, has seized her land. She's kind of in that same situation as Naomi and Ruth were. When Naomi went away, when she came back, she didn't have the land anymore she's trying to get it back so she's looking not just to get her boy back which she got but her land back and something that we call justice what are the chances that she'll get it verse four the king was talking to gehazi the servant of the man of god and had said tell me about all the great things elisha has done it's surprising isn't it to see gehazi here because he was given leprosy back in chapter five You'd think he probably wouldn't be allowed at court. Perhaps this story is out of chronological order. The Bible writers often do that. Or perhaps this king doesn't care about 
the fact that he's leprous. He's getting used to having lepers around. They saved his fat from the fire last week. But he's asking Gehazi to regale him with Elisha's stories, especially the miracles. Tell me some more about those miracles, the ones that not everybody knows about. Verse 5. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for a house and land. What a coincidence, right? What timing. Gehazi said, this is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it and she told him, Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. Don't you just love that story? That's a great story. It's a great story about how there really are no coincidences and that God's timing is absolutely perfect. It's a story about how God arranges things so that there is justice. Now, what should we be saying when we read that? Huh. That's great. She got justice. But I thought God had promised to bring justice for the blood of His servants. What about all those guys that Ahab and Jezebel killed? Verse 7. Elisha went to Damascus, Syria, and Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, will I recover from this illness? Now friends, this is a turning point in the story of Elisha. Elisha's been doing miracles that bring grace and life. We've seen them again and again. But now Elisha will be prophesying mostly judgment and death. He goes out of the country to Syria. Doesn't say why, but he's nearby to the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, who's been the enemy of Israel for many chapters now. How many times have we read Ben-Hadad went to war against Israel? Ben-Hadad went to war against Israel. Well, Ben-Hadad is now sick. And he's worried about his future. He's learned by now, maybe from Naaman, his general, that Elisha can tell the future. So he sends one of his guys to find out what's going to happen. And his guy's name is what? What's it say? Hazael. And ding, that should ring bells for us. Why? Because in 1 Kings 19, the Lord told the prophet to anoint Hazael king over Aram. And he's supposed to be a king that brings vengeance. Look at verse 9. Hazael went to meet Elisha, taking with him as a gift 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. But the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. Then the man of God began to weep. uh, What's going on? Why is my Lord weeping? Asked Hazael. Because I know the harm you'll bring to the Israelites, he answered. 
You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Hazael said, How could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? Yahweh has shown me that you will become king of Aaron, answered Elisha. Then Hazael left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, What did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Hazael succeeded him as king. I told you this wouldn't be boring. There's an assassination for you right there. Elisha tells Hazael that Ben-Hadad would recover just fine if he were allowed to. But Hazael will murder him in his sleep and take over the kingdom. God has shown this to Elisha. It's part of his plan, but he takes no pleasure in it. Hazael seems to take pleasure in it. He's like, yeah, that sounds cool, but how could I ever do that? God says it will happen, which is no excuse for what he does. Hazael takes matters into his own hands and becomes the king of Aram by treachery. Now, how about the kings of Judah and Israel? We haven't seen much of them for the last few chapters. The king of Judah, almost not at all. I think he's got mentioned like once. So now in verse 16, we get an update of what's going on in the south. Who's the king? Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat. Verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. Now, what do you know is next? When we get to one of those formulas, what do we ask? Is this guy a good king who walks with the Lord, or a bad king who doesn't? This is the south, remember? The north is always bad, consistently bad. Thumbs down in the north. But in the, in the south, some are up and some are down. How about this guy? He's related to David. Verse 18. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That would be two thumbs down. He married into and followed the wicked family in the north. But he wasn't wiped out. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. Verse 19. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. That's, in fact, why we have Christmas. Because a son of David was born in Bethlehem that lives today to keep God's promises. Verse 20. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zair with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. Libna revolted at the same time. As for the other events of Jehoram's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoram rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. So Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, was nothing to write home about. He barely survived and his kingdom shrank under his rule. How about his son, Ahaziah? Is he thumbs up or thumbs down? Look at verse 25. 
In the twelfth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His, mother name, his mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel, probably the daughter of Jezebel. Remember that name for next week. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Ahaziah, verse 27. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. Ahaziah went with Joram, son of Ahab, in the north to war against Hazael, the new king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. The Arameans wounded Joram. So King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramoth in his battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. Now, I know there's a lot of detail there. I'm not going to spend time exploring all the little ins and outs, but I will say this. If you do the math on the reigns of these two kings, Jehoram in the north, Ahaziah in the south, they're like cousins, they're related. Uh, you're going to find out that both of these guys are due to die in the same year. Okay, Because of how long one's going to reign and how long the other one's going to reign, they're due to die in the same, same year. And they're both now where? In the same place. Jezreel. You get a feeling like everything's kind of coming together? You ever watch a movie and you're like, oh, I see where this is going, and okay, I see where this is going, and I see where this is going? Well, that's, that's where the readers of Second Kings are doing. If they're paying attention, they're like, uh-oh. It's all coming together. And the king of the north has a military leader who has the name Jehu. Everything is now in place for God's vengeance to fall. 2 Kings chapter 9. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and hightail it. Run. Don't delay. So the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for, for you, commander, he said. For which of us? asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anoint you, king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. There's our title. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. I told you it wouldn't be boring. What does this make Jehu? It makes Jehu a Messiah. 
What does Messiah mean in Hebrew? An anointed ruler. Jehu is the only king of the northern kingdom to be anointed. And he is anointed to bring God's vengeance. Now we don't like that word vengeance. For most of us, vengeance conjures up the connotation of meanness, beastliness, unrighteous anger, something out of proportion, out of whack, wrong. But when vengeance is decreed by God, it means justice. It means righting the wrong and making everything right by righteous force. The time has come for God to avenge the blood of His servants. And He has anointed Jehu as the Messiah to do it. Verse 11. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right?" Just imagine the look on his face, right? Why did this madman come to you? I mean, he was in and then he was out. It was whoosh, whoosh. What's going on? Oh, you know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. Uh, uh, that's not true, they said. You're covered in oil. Come on. Tell us. Jehu said, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. And they believed him. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king! So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Jehu said, if this is the way you feel, don't let anyone slip out of the city and go tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and he rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. Just imagine, if this is a movie, there's dust flying behind his chariot, right? And the music is just growing. When the lookout, standing on the tower in Jezreel, saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? That's the key question here. Do you come in peace? Verse 18. The horseman rode off to meet Jehu. And said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jay replied, fall in behind me. The lookout reported, the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. Did you get the picture? The chariots come back, back behind and they're roaring, rumbling this way. The lookout reported, He has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out each in his own chariot to meet Jehu. The two kings are now Roaring their way towards Jehu, who's roaring his way towards them. They met at a plot of ground that belonged to, are you ready? Naboth the Jezreelite. Do you remember that name? You can see what's going to happen. That's the, that, 
his granddaddy Ahab, on the almost orders of his wife Jezebel, said, steal that plot of ground. Kill Naboth, the the Jezreelite. Take his land. Make it your own. That's where they meet. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? And then the penny dropped. Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab his father when the Lord made this prophecy about him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. How many times have we seen that God always keeps his promises? It's like the theme of the Old Testament. How many times do we need to be told that that includes His threats in accordance with the word of Yahweh, it says. Verse 27, When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagen. Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too! They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Ibleim, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his fathers in the tomb in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king of Judah. Jehu has killed on this day not just one king, but two. Not just the king of Israel in the north, but the king of Judah in the south. What will happen down there? And And has Jehu gone too far? It's Jezebel's turn now. It's been a long time coming. Verse 30. Then Jehu went back to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. Always the queen. Always the idolatrous harlot. Always defiant and unrepentant, even though she knows her time is up. Verse 31. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zemri? You murderer of your master. He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. Was that what the prophecy said? But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord. That he spoke through his prophet Elijah the Tishbite, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. I told you it wouldn't be boring. Has Jehu come in peace? He's come in vengeance. But it's not just his own vengeance. It is the Lord's vengeance. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab. 
Elisha said that God has said that they all need to go. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the officials of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, as soon as this letter reaches you, since your master's sons are with you and you have chariots and horses of fortified city and weapons, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne. Then fight for your master's house, because ready or not, here I come. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders and the guardians sent this message to Jehu, we are your servants and will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king, you do whatever you think best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, if you're on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu and Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu they had brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The next morning, Jehu went out. He stood before all the people and said, you're innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what He promised through His servant Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained in the house of Ahab as well as all his chief men, his close friends and his priests, leaving him no survivor. I told you it wouldn't be boring. The author does not let us think for a second that God is not in all of this vengeance. Verse 2, know that that not a word the Lord has spoken will fail. The Lord has done what He promised, including carry out His threats. Now I tend to think that in this section, this next section, Jehu starts to go it on his own. Verse 12, Jehu then set out and went towards Samaria. At Beth-Echad of the shepherds, he met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? They said, We are relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the families of the king and of the queen mother. Take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of Beth-Echad. Forty-two men. He left no survivor. Now I'm sure that Jehu could have made the excuse that these two royal families have intermarried and so this was bringing God's justice to bear on them as well. But just like killing King Ahaziah wasn't in his marching orders, I'm pretty sure that killing these guys wasn't either. And we find in Hosea chapter, I think it's 3, that there's going to be a reckoning for this. But Jehu has got the taste of blood now. Verse 15. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehonadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did. And Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. And then he got really tricky. Verse 18. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. 
uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his ministers and all his priests, see that no one is missing because I'm going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the ministers of Baal. It's a plot. Somebody's got to make this into a movie at some point. Though we probably wouldn't go see it, right? Jehu said, Call an assembly in honor of Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then he sent word throughout Israel, and all the ministers of Baal came. Not one stayed away. They crowded into the temple of Baal until it was full from one end to the other. And Jehu said to the keeper of the wardrobe, Bring robes for all the ministers of Baal. So he brought out robes for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal. Jehu said to the ministers of Baal, Look around and see that no servants of Yahweh are here with you, only ministers of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burn offerings. Now Jehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I'm placing in your hands escape, it will be your life or his life. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, go in and kill them, let no one escape. So they cut them down with the sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. And people have used it for a latrine to this day. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. Can you believe it? Can you believe that? That last sentence we just read. Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. I'm sure that the Israelites never thought that could happen. How long? They've been saying, how long? Just a few pages ago, there were Baal priests on every corner, and it seemed like Baal worship would never end in Israel, and one day it did. In one day. One day it was gone just like that because the Jehu the Messiah came, and through Him the Lord avenged the blood of His servants. So does this mean that Jehu was two thumbs up? Unfortunately not. Verse 29. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he'd caused Israel to commit. The worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Baal is gone. But that doesn't mean that Jehu has a good heart. In fact, he didn't go far enough with his reforms. He didn't take them back to Yahweh, just to whatever Jeroboam had created. Verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. One thumb up. He's the only king of Israel who gets one thumb up because he acted as a Messiah. Verse 31, yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he'd caused Israel to. To commit. And the nation paid for it. Verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael, as prophesied, overpowered the Israelites throughout their territory, east of the Jordan, all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Eror by the Arnon Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. That's what Elisha was crying about when he met with Hazael. As for the other events of Jehu's reign, all he did and all his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehu rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Jehoahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. 
The time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. So I told you it wouldn't be boring, but what does it mean for us today? It's a very bloody story. It's hard to stare at, isn't it? It makes you a little queasy. Think about all of that death and destruction. I love that the prophet, when he sees this future, weeps over the vengeance to come. But I also love that the vengeance shows us God's perfect justice. Let me give you three quick points of application. Number one, marvel at the patience of God. Marvel at the patience of God. When we see all that vengeance fall, all in a very short amount of time, madman Jehu riding his chariot, shooting his bows and arrows, killing people left and right, we can easily forget that God has been very patient with everybody concerned. Chapter after chapter, people are given the opportunity to repent and make amends. But Jezebel just suits up and puts on her Maybelline. She stands there defiantly. Isn't it amazing that we are not all toast? I know I have a hard time being patient and long-suffering with people who cross me. And I don't have the responsibility of bringing justice for my servants, the prophets, who've been slaughtered. The Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But He won't be patient forever. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Vengeance is coming, but right now He's being patient. And so should we be. It's not us, up to us to take vengeance on ourselves, for ourselves. Because God's timing is not off at all. God can swoop in and connect the Shunammite mom with the king at the very moment when Gehazi is telling the story of her son being raised to life. He doesn't get the timing wrong, ever. He's being patient. Whenever we're tired that He hasn't brought the justice like we think, it's because we're being impatient. And that should make us marvel. And also repentant. Don't put off your repentance thinking you've got till forever. You don't know how much time you have. He does. But you don't. He always keeps His promises, including His threats. He's just being patient right now. Is this your view of God? This is the Bible's view of God. If you look at it and you say, well, my God would never do that. You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Number two, tremble at the vengeance of God. When the Lord finally does unleash His justice, it's terrible to behold. And don't think that this is just an Old Testament kind of thing with God. Some people think that, well, in the Old Testament, He's, he's vengeance, and in the New Testament, not so much. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Read the book of Revelation. This summer we read the book of Revelation in our Family Bible Week class on apocalyptic literature. Vengeance is in there. 
God promises to avenge the blood of His servants and He will. What happened to Jezebel? Jezebel shows up in Revelation as well. Right? As a name of somebody. kind of Somebody took on that name or maybe John and God applied that name to a certain somebody. That's how she's acting. What happened to Jezebel? What happened to the priest of Baal? Is a picture of what will happen in the final judgment to all the unrepentant. And it will be the Messiah who does it. God's anointed one. This afternoon, read Revelation chapter 19. That's your homework. Read it and tremble. Here are just a few verses from it. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. You thought Jehu was something. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with, a, with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We just sang it this morning. And unlike Jehu, this anointed one won't make any mistakes. He won't go too far. And he, and he won't go not far enough. His justice will be just right. Is it peace? Do you come in peace? The answer is there will be peace when Jesus brings it in full. You're my Prince of Peace and I will live my life for you. Vengeance is mine I will repay, saith the Lord. Tremble at that. Don't look away from it. Don't say, oh, I didn't expect church to be like that this morning. And just think about something else. Gaze at this God. Know this is our God. Our God is not just a kind and merciful God. He's not just an old uncle who loved to hand out presents at Christmas with a twinkle in his eye. Our God is a consuming fire. And He will avenge the blood of His servants. Tremble with joy at that. Yes, I mean that. With joy. Because there's almost nothing more comforting. It is good news that God is just and will bring perfect justice to the world. Every wrong will be made right. Nobody will get away with anything. That's worth celebrating. That's how it is in Revelation. Here's the first verse of chapter 19 that you're going to read this afternoon. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. Now they could sing, how great is His, is his salvation, and they do. But here they say, how great, how true and right and just are His judgments. He's going to bring us perfect justice. Hallelujah. Have you been hurt by someone? Does it feel like they're going to get away with it? They won't. You ever look out in the world and you say, Hitler. 
Where's the justice? Their sin will either be judged at the cross or in the eternal judgment, and it will be perfectly dealt with. Justice will be done and will be seen to be done. God will avenge the blood of His servants. Tremble with joy at that. And number three, hope in the grace of God. Because this story isn't over yet. Jehu dies, just like all the other kings. Things are not perfect yet. But there is another king coming who will make everything right. He'll be two thumbs up. He'll be every thumb you can think of up. And he'll perfectly balance grace and justice. In fact, he will take the justice on himself. He will take God's vengeance on himself. Would the men come forward to help me serve communion? Because that's what the cross is, isn't it? The wrath of God. We just sang it this morning. The wrath of God applied to the Son of God. The just vengeance of God applied to the Son of God. That's what the cross is. You look and you say, oh, I don't want to see a God who judges like that. Well, that's what's going on at the cross. He's taking the vengeance that you and I deserve in His body on the tree to give us grace. That's what this table is all about. As John Newton said, let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's door. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with His blood. He who washed us with His blood. He who washed us with His blood has secured our way to God. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard sometimes to look and see the kind of justice that You meet out. But when we see it right, we know it's right and good. And it causes us to say, hallelujah. How just and, and right are your judgments. Thank you for judging our sin at the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. And for being our Messiah to deliver us from our sins and from our enemies forever. I pray for anybody here who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior for the grace that He offers that they would turn from their sins now and trust in the only way out of receiving this kind of vengeance. Christ. Would you do that, Lord? right now, rescue them and bring them in to the kingdom of your beloved Son. We tremble at the thought and we rejoice in it. We hope in the grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.